do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they, were, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, for both the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced for so because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, 
even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so, lots in this passage, and uh, we're also going to go straight into the Lord's Supper after the, or, to conclude the sermon, I guess. So, uh, if you haven't got one of these amazing new inventions, uh, which is a COVID-safe all-in-one Lord's Supper cup, uh, just pop your hand up. Adam can drop one round. Everyone got one? Uh, he needs one? Great. Uh, we're going to share the Lord's Supper later. Uh, let me pray as we get into this passage. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. Uh, we pray for this passage that uh, is challenging, which uh, causes us to question our very faith, our actions, how we live, uh, but also reminds us of your great love for us uh, through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we pray that uh, we would hear from you today through your word, that would respond rightly for those of us that need to uh, repent, perhaps to find you for the first time. We pray that you would do that work in our hearts. For those of us that uh, know and love you, we pray that we would repent of the things we haven't done or what we should be doing. And we pray that we'd be encouraged to live more for you and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, <clears throat> as you can tell from my physique, I am a keen runner. Okay, settle down. Uh, Leanna and I have actually been running for quite a few years on and off, um, but as you can probably tell from my physique, I I'm not going to win any medals uh, in the near future. Uh, more of a sort of casual jogger to pretend I do some exercise uh, every now and again. Uh, and uh, this is the example, or rather I'm not the example, that Paul gives uh, in chapter 9, verse 24, the right at the beginning of our passage. Uh, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. In other words, Usain Bolt, Mo Farah, Linford Christie, remember him? What a great guy. Uh, they didn't win because they turned up. They didn't win just because they knew that there was a race. They won because they had trained. They wanted to win, and so they trained. They disciplined their bodies, their minds, their desires in order to win the medal, or in Corinthian times, a crown. Uh, verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it, talking of our faith, to get a crown that will last forever. So an athlete undergoes extraordinary discipline and self-restraint, don't they? Just for a gold medal or a crown. Followers of Jesus, Christians, we need to discipline ourselves for the crown of eternal and glorious life with the Lord Jesus. Uh, now, this isn't a contradiction of what Paul's told us earlier in Corinthians, uh, or the teachings throughout the Bible, in fact, that salvation is a free gift of grace from God. Salvation is free. Paul's absolutely clear about that. We are called by God, we're told in um, 
the first chapter of Corinthians. Uh, not by our own strength, but because we are, uh, or not because we're worthy in any way. The Bible is consistent in saying that someone who is saved is freely saved by grace. But the Bible is also consistent that someone who is saved freely by grace lives a disciplined, godly life in response. And if we don't look like this, well, then perhaps we haven't truly accepted the grace of God in the first place. We're frauds, Paul's about to say, still facing his judgment. Those saved by the gospel, says Paul, the good news of Jesus, will discipline themselves to run the race of faith in humble obedience to God. Not perfectly, but striving to be disciplined, resisting sin and temptation, fleeing all other idols, anything else before God. That's the big picture of this passage. It's why he introduces it with uh, such an obvious example from life, where you can't win the prize if you don't discipline yourself and train for it. Uh, if you like, the, the kind of big message is remember the gospel of Jesus. That's where it starts. That's the free gift. And therefore, he uses that word in today's passage, live a self-disciplined and godly life or be judged. Uh, have a look at verse 26 to 27. Uh, he carries on mixing the, uh, the illustration of athletes and Christian faith. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Even Paul, the great apostle anointed by Jesus, met Jesus even he is careful to discipline himself. Why? In all areas of his life, why? He strikes his body, metaphorically, not, not literally, but in a godly, spiritual, disciplined way. Oh. <laughs> why? Even he, after preaching the gospel to all of those around in the uh, first century, even he disciplines himself. Why? So he doesn't find himself disqualified from the prize. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Even preaching the gospel to others, the good news of Jesus to others, doesn't save the preacher. Knowing the gospel, just knowing what it is, is no guarantee of salvation. Knowing that Jesus died for sins doesn't save us. It is belief in those things, yes, but then that belief, that free gift, is accompanied by a life marked by fruitful obedience, self-discipline, humility and repentance when we fail. These are the marks of someone who is saved, someone who is not disqualified. A self-disciplined life is required, or we are disqualified from the prize. Uh, if you're not convinced, says Paul, and I, I wonder if they, like us, this is, uh, this is challenging. He says, look at the people of the Old Testament. They are there as your example. So have a look at verse 1 of chapter 10. 
For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. So the Israelites, he's talking about here, God's people freed from the tyranny of slavery in Egypt, uh, forced to work to make bricks. If you remember, if you go back and read some of the Old Testament, their baby boys were murdered at birth. There's a kind of birth control to stop them uh, growing up to take over from the Egyptians. They were hated. They were mistreated. They were enslaved. It was, it was, a, it was death, their life. But God, in his great love, saved them. If you remember, he raised up the leader Moses and empowered Moses through miracles and signs that God brought about to deliver them from Egypt. And uh, we all know the story, don't we? God parted the Red Sea so that the whole nation could escape from Egypt uh, into the wilderness. And he led them by a cloud, a cloud that both led them and confused the enemy behind as they went through the Red Sea. And then the sea enclosed over the enemy and God's people were saved. And there's no question about that story, is it? Uh, is there? But, but the God did that. No one else managed to part the Red Sea just on a good day, and uh, they escaped. God saved them by his grace alone. Nothing they could have done to do it any differently. And in the, the Red Sea, effectively, they came out the other side. They died to their old life of slavery. This is what Paul's talking about. They were born again into a new life with God before them, guiding them by the cloud, freely by grace, this new life given. And verse 2, Paul compares that event uh, back then with us being baptized today in water. In other words, we have died to our old life. As we go down into the water, it symbolizes our death to sin, our slavery to sin in the water. And then we're raised to new life in Christ before us, purely by grace, free gift of God's grace. And he goes on to uh, make their comparison between their, and ex uh, their experience and ours. So have a look at uh, verse 3. There's, there's more comparisons. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied, accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Uh, there's allusions all through this passage to things going on in the Israelites' time. But God daily provided bread for them, spiritual food, the manna that rained down from heaven that they could collect every day. He provided water from a rock, of all things. Moses hit it with his stick. Uh, water came out. He calls it spiritual food and spiritual drink as an allusion to the Lord's Supper for us, to communion. And we'll uh, see that a little bit later. He expands on that further later on in the passage. His point is, they all started in the same place. They started in death, in slavery. They were freed, purely by the grace of God, into new life. That's where he's wanting us to start. Nevertheless, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Uh, while Moses was up on the mountainside receiving the Ten Commandments, the law of God for his people. Verse 7, they got up and indulged in revelry. They built a golden calf. They worshipped false gods. Verse 6. Verse 8, they went to orgies with foreign women and at their idol festivals. 
And so God brought judgment on them, and in one day, 2,300 of them died. In verses 9 to 10, Paul reminds us that they grumbled and they tested God. Uh, Let me read you Numbers 21, verse 5. So this is the account from the Old Testament, which Paul's making reference to to, uh, uh, various parts. But let me read you verse 5 of Numbers 21. They spoke against God, the God who had saved them from slavery. They spoke against God and against Moses, God's appointed leader. And they said... (laughs) Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. I'm sorry. (laughs) There's no bread and water while they're eating bread and water. They're enjoying the manna described as honey. It's delicious. They're so used to this new wonderful life that they've begun. They, They start to grumble and test God. God's provided them water from a rock. He, he's seen them do it, uh, him do it through Moses. And so verse 6 of Numbers 21, the very next verse, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. It's not surprising, is it? As the grace of God and his blessings become their normality, how quickly they forget how blessed their life is. Uh, So verse 6, back in our passage, chapter 10. Now these things occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Verse 10 and 11. And do not grumble as 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 they did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as an example and were written down as warnings to us on whom the whole culmination of the ages has come. Uh, We've seen the fulfillment of everything that that all pointed to through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Be warned from their example. So, friends, knowing Jesus isn't enough. Being baptized does not save us. Taking part in the Lord's Supper, which we will later, doesn't save us. It's not enough. It's a heartfelt, deep trust in the things that the Israelites forgot. The grace and the love of God. Not just knowing about salvation. Satan himself knows about salvation. But living in the light of the salvation we have been given through grace, by faith. And it will be seen in our lives through a disciplined and godly life, says Paul. We cannot forget the slavery to sin that we once were in, that we were trapped in, dead in our sin, nothing we could do about it. We cannot forget our baptism where Christ died for our sins and then was raised again to new life in our place freely. But we can't forget that. So we come to him daily in repentance and humility to the cross of Jesus. That is how we remember what we believe. That is how we enjoy and remember uh, Jesus. That is why we celebrate and partake in the Lord's Supper as believers. Because that is our hope. His body, his blood broken and shed 
so that ours doesn't have to be. He rose again to new life so that we know we can too. The eternal crown, Paul calls it, of life to look forward to because of Jesus' work. Where we will have Jesus himself, life eternal, the prize before us. How, when we remember that, can we grumble? How can we give in to temptation so easily? Without a fight? It doesn't matter, Jesus will forgive me. How can we pursue our lusts and our desires? How can we test God? Unless we've forgotten those things. We've forgotten forgotten the grace we've been given. And unless perhaps we're not saved at all, we just know those things but have never given our life fully to Jesus. Perhaps we still face the judgment of God. No wonder Paul says, I I strike blows to my body. Take heed from these warnings of history. Fight temptation, he says. You do not want to find you never really believed it. Um, In case we think it's too challenging, verse 13, uh, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There is no excuse. It sounds like an encouragement. Actually, it feels like more of a challenge, doesn't it? But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's no excuse, brothers and sisters, to sin. There is always enough daily strength from God to overcome. There is always a way out. And this is the life of a Christian, says Paul, one that uh, strives to be godly, that is disciplined, that remembers the gospel that Jesus is Lord and lives a life by what we say we believe. And uh, perhaps you, you think, well, this sounds a bit over the top and I'm not sure... I think I'm just fine as I am, actually. There's no real issue here. I'm a pretty good Christian. It's good enough. Paul says, verse 12, So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're standing firm, you, you need to look at Jesus again. You need to remember what we have been saved from and for. And if you've achieved perfection, then, then great, chill out, put your feet up. But in reality, we know that's never going to happen until Jesus returns. Even Paul, a great apostle, disciplined himself, struck, struck blows to his body metaphorically. And if we don't think we need to work at our faith to discipline ourselves, the chances are then we haven't really quite realised the truth of the gospel, that Jesus the Lord is king. We don't want to find ourselves disqualified from the prize. And now if you're like me, um, you'd have read all that or listened to this now and uh, and your response will be, wow, I'm, uh, I'm a pretty rubbish Christian (laughs) I'm on pretty shaky ground right now 
I know Jesus has saved me. I know he loves me. So I'm going to work hard at my life, not to be saved, but so that my life shows some fruit. But I don't, I don't know if it's enough. I think that's exactly the right place to be. Verse 12, again, if you, if you think of it uh, backwards, makes that point, doesn't it? So verse 12, if you think you are standing firm or if you think you're on shaky ground, you're trying your hardest but you keep failing, be careful that you don't fall if you're standing firm. But if you're on shaky ground, well, then you're probably doing the right thing. <laughs> See, part of the fruit of being a Christian is, is knowing that we're not good enough for Jesus. Coming before him in humility, striking the blows, as Paul says. He doesn't need to strike blows to his body if there's nothing wrong with it, does he? It's to recognize we need Jesus. To every day come to his cross, to remember what he saved us from. And we don't want to be like that anymore. I'm going to strive harder for this. Not to be saved, but because I am saved. Because I'm no longer this. I am now this. And so that is what I'm going to work on. So if you feel like you're on shaky ground, perhaps that's exactly where we're meant to be. Uh, In uh, the rest of the passage, Paul sort of applies this principle uh, to the church in Corinth. Uh, And it will help us think through some of the practical ways we might want to apply this principle Uh, He actually returns to the question that they asked him in chapter 8 about whether they should eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Um, But I I think there's two sort of governing principles that will help us think about how do we live a life that is disciplined uh, for God in response to the grace we've been given. And the first one is that we should flee idolatry. So we're going to think briefly about what that looks like. So we flee idolatry, we face the Lord's jealousy. Uh, And the second one is, we are freed for God's glory, not our own. In other words, we do everything for the glory of God, not our own. That's our aim. So first of all, flee idolatry or face the Lord's jealousy. Have a look at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Do you see where I got my point? Spent a lot of time on that one. Uh, The word therefore, uh, therefore, dear friends, implies that everything he's just told us is now what, this is what you've got to do about it. It's based on the argument he's made. In other words, because Israel messed up, they grumbled and they uh, they were therefore judged and died at the hands of God. Because of that, that warning, therefore, we don't do the same and so we must flee idolatry, the thing they didn't do. Now, idolatry covers a multitude of sins, but not in the wrong way around, in the sense that everything we, in effect, do wrong, at its root, comes down to this idea of idolatry. Uh, So it's often an issue of idolatry uh, in our own lives that causes us to sin, to, to grumble, to lust, to seek comfort rather than sacrificial service for God and his people. So the idol of wealth or comfort might cause us to put work uh, before uh, joining a home group or coming to church. or The idol of education 
uh, or our, the idol of our children might cause us to put uh, more money into uh, education or tutoring than we can really afford rather than trusting God and giving more to his work. The idol of self-ability might cause us not to pray. None of these things are necessarily bad, but if it's taking the place of God, it's becoming an idol, isn't it? The idol of pride might cause us not to attend a prayer meeting in case we don't pray the right prayer in front of others. The idol of pride might cause us to attend prayer meeting so that other people think we're very holy and we can pray really good prayers. Or perhaps we could point out one or two people who didn't pray very well at the prayer meeting. The sin of uh, indulgence might cause us to uh, make watching or playing sports an idol rather than God and his people on a Sunday. So many idols, so many temptations, so many grey areas and complications, so many things that we give our time to and we give our money to and we give our attention to and we give all our thoughts to, all at the expense of the one and only God and his people. Uh, Verse 15, I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. I don't know if I can apply that directly. I hope I can. I can't. We, We know, don't we? Paul knows that we know. Paul knows that the Corinthian church knew. It's not complicated. We're sensible people. So when we choose something other than something else over church or over a home group or work over a home group or sport over church or one more holiday than we really need uh, over supporting a missionary or comfort over sacrifice or ease over evangelism. We're sensible people, aren't we? We know. Our conscience tells us. We're elevating those things above God. Uh, The example Paul gives is about them being free uh, to eat meat that is offered to idols. He made that argument in chapter 8, and he said there are no idols because there's only one God, and all food belongs to God. So in one sense, you're free to do whatever you like. It's not complicated. But really, is that where you want to commit all your time to? I wonder if this is a helpful principle for us. We're free to do whatever we like on a Sunday. Jesus has saved us. But really, is that where you want to commit your time to? Is that how you want to exercise your freedoms? By joining in with those things? Let alone how our actions may tempt or lead other believers astray who don't have the same understanding of freedoms that we do. Flee idolatry, he says. Don't don't go near it. We've not been freed from sin to dabble in it again. Flee it. Instead, devote your joy and your time and your efforts So doing the important thing, which is remembering Jesus our Lord and then loving his people in his church. Corinthians 10 verse 16 and 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break in participation, sorry, a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one life, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one life. We're a body, a family. I'm I'm aware that this isn't one life, I'm sorry. Um, But the idea of 
normally. We'd break a loaf and all share. We belong together. We're, we're united. Each per- person around you, our faith, our life, is, or, ought to be more valuable to us than any of the other things that we might be tempted to raise up as idols. More valuable are the people sat around you than our comfort or our freedoms or our pride or our idols. And and so we're to love them. Flee from idolatry. Love God. Love his church. And then that's the second principle Paul raises up. um, Freed from for God's glory, not our own. Uh, It's the opposite of idolatry, really, isn't it? Um, If we're freed for God's glory instead of for our own, we're fleeing idolatry and we're living for God. Anything we live for other than God is to effectively raise something up in his place. But verse 23 says, I have the right to do anything, you say. So it sounds like that's what they've quoted to Paul. And Paul's actually confirmed that teaching in chapter 8. He says, in effect, you have the right to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good. That's a challenge. But the good of others. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. We are freed into living a life for the glory of God, which means loving him and loving his people, the church. Even if you're confident that you're free before God to do something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing to do, if it might test the conscience of someone else. Love others before yourself. Don't defend our freedoms at the expense of others' faith or their consciences before God. Uh, Verse 31 Again, you're going to see where I got this, uh, this second point from. It's not that imaginative. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it, do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, work, money, time, the internet, computers, our family, our thoughts, our decisions, do it all for the glory of God. That verse means that at work, uh, you'll work diligently and honestly but not at the expense of glorifying God or loving his family at the church. It means we'll spend our money as good stewards for God, not extravagant and beyond our means, and not at the expense of loving God, giving glory to God and loving our church, furthering the gospel, or in a way that tempts other people. Maybe a challenging one to think about. We could go on, but the idea is everything we do in our life ought to be for the glory of God. And living for the glory of God uh, does actually more than just loving our families. It's also the way in which the world, uh, the way we love the world as well. So verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greek, or the church. So in other words, everyone, verse 33, even as I try to please everyone in every way, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. This is what we're about if we have been saved by Jesus, living for the glory of God, loving others and loving the world so that they may be saved. So we live a life in a way that doesn't cause our verbal message of the gospel to be compromised. 
When we talk about Jesus, they want to see that our lives match up. Or at least we're trying, which is the battle, as we said earlier. So if we've been saved by the grace of Jesus, our life now looks like a self-discipline, daily repenting, church family and other people loving, gospel spreading life. Some of us here uh, do not want our lives to look like that. And if that's you, Paul says, be careful, because you, you may be disqualified. Return to the cross in repentance. Remember truly that Jesus is Lord. Beg for his mercy. Beg for his help to help you respond with fruitful obedience and love for the glory of God. But most of us will hear this uh, reminder of what the Christian life is by Paul. Uh, and we'll want to be that. We'll want to live a way that glorifies God, loves others, the church, loves the world so that they may be saved. We're not required to be perfect. We're required to pursue perfection, perhaps, but we're not required to be perfect. And so we'll continually strike blows to our bodies. We will discipline ourselves and our, our minds and our actions so that we are running the race that Jesus has called us to. James 1 verse 22 says, Do not merely listen to the word, to, to what Jesus says, and so deceive yourselves. You can know it. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We're going to share the uh, Lord's Supper to, to end. Uh, we're going to remember the Lord's death and resurrection for us. We're going to remember his grace and his mercy freely given. And we're going to take it seriously. Verse 21 and 22 again of our passage. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. If you don't have Jesus at the top of your agenda, you may not get it right. But if that's not your desire and your aim and your love, then you cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Verse 22. Are we stronger than he? If you don't have a desire to live for Jesus, then please don't take the Lord's Supper. That's not a problem. Just don't take it with us. That's absolutely fine. And I'd encourage you to talk to me, one of the elders, uh, one of the staff afterwards, if you'd like to think more about it. But if, like me, this passage has humbled you again... <laughs> reminded you of our great thankfulness, the cup of thankfulness of Jesus' love for us. And let this meal remind us of all that he has done. Let it be a meal where we recommit our entire lives, every thought and action to him. Let it remind us of our unity of one body as we share. Let me pray. Uh, there'll be a moment of quiet, and then uh, I'll read verse 16 from our passage, which also speaks of the Lord's Supper, and then we'll share together. Salvation is not based on anything we can do or have done. We are saved by grace. We thank you that our lives 
will be changed, will look different. We will strive for your glory and the love of your people when we remember rightly the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again. So as we share this meal, may the bread remind us of Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed so that we do not have to face your judgment and wrath. And we thank you that this meal will remind us that Jesus rose again to new life and so holds out the eternal crown of glory that we will receive through your grace. And may this meal change our hearts and our minds to live for you and your glory each and every day. Forgive us for the times we haven't. Restore us. Strengthen us. Show us this week all the ways around and out of temptation so that we do not sin. Help us to flee idolatry. Help us to remember the Lord Jesus now. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.